Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith, and I'm sitting across from Johnny Simon. Hi, Johnny. Good morning, Eric. How are you doing? I'm filling in for my dad, John Simon, but hopefully there won't be anything left out. <laughs> and uh, we have on the line at our virtual table, Mark Mandel. Hi, Mark. Good morning. Well, actually, good afternoon for me. All right. You work at the firm of Mandel, Beauclair, and Mandel with your wife, Yvette, and your son, Zach. You're here for a number of reasons. One, that you've done some extremely impressive work in your practice of catastrophic personal injury, wrongful death, med mal, dram shop, products liability. You're a member of the inner circle. You've done a lot of amazing work as an attorney. We'd love to talk to you about you know, trial work, of course, but you've also written two books that Johnny and I have both read, Case Framing and Advanced Case Framing, and uh, we'd like to talk about those. So uh, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Yeah, really incredible. And you know, one of my things I always think about when I read books from folks like you, Mark, is where do you find time amidst practicing law to write books? You just find time. You fill your day. You know, I'm very intense. Every night when I go to sleep, I go to sleep tired. <laughs> to carve out of a busy trial practice, uh, writing two different books, two complete books, it was a monumental job. I gave up a significant amount of my free time. What's your favorite way to decompress or recharge when you're not practicing law now that you've finished your books? Yvette and I love to ride bikes. Probably like in St. Louis, it's true here too. We can't ride bikes all year round, but we do ride and we'll go out for zero to 40 mile rides. We ride a lot. We enjoy doing yoga. Been doing that for about 30 years now. And then just, uh, I love to read. I'm always reading. I'm either reading law, which is most of what I read, but I do still like to read novels. So those are the things I do. Spend time with my family. It's my favorite activity. How was it that a young boy named Mark Mandel became a lawyer? What's your path to that profession? My mother was a lawyer. She never practiced, but she graduated law school, University of Alabama. She was from Birmingham in 1941, actually. She was pretty far ahead of her time. She instilled in me just a love for the law, a real deep passion for justice. So it's something I've always wanted. Uh, I think the very first person I really looked up to outside of my family was Abraham Lincoln when I heard about him and read about him and what he did for racial equality and the great sacrifice of his life. He was a lawyer. So that's all I've ever wanted to be professionally. After and during my readings of your books, it kept occurring to me how powerful a frame can be. And I just noticed things around me where once they are reframed, the facts, the very facts that you're looking at flip, they change. You know, the same thing becomes different when you look at it differently. I just read this story about a fellow named George Danzig in 1939. He was uh, at a university, a math student, and he came late to class. And the problems were already on the board, the, the homework assignments. So he wrote the homework assignments down and he attended the rest of the class. And the story is he went home after the class and he started working on his homework. And he said to himself, these are extremely hard homework problems. And he worked, worked, worked at them. He was late turning them in. 
and he was apologizing to the professor whose eyes, you know, popped open. And what he had done is he had just solved two unsolvable math questions <laughs> that had plagued mathematicians. He didn't know they were unsolvable. He was thinking they were homework. And so that attitude, when you came in, you thought, oh, these are things I'm supposed to do. It reframed the whole thing. I find it interesting. That's a tremendous story. So, Mark, I really am interested because I have a father who's practiced for 35 years, 40 years. My dad always says your case needs to be about something bigger. Make your case something bigger than your client. He's always told me that. And when I start reading your framing, man, this is like a methodology that is like boom, 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 really organized and to the point. Before writing the book, when did this kind of idea spring on you? I've been practicing about 47 years, Johnny. And when I first started practicing, pretty much it was the dark ages and understanding what we should be doing. So for the first, I'm guessing, 20, 25, 30 years of my practice, I survived on a lot of work, a lot of hard work, my intuition, and you know, a small knowledge of the rules of evidence. But I've always tried to understand. I mean, it's so important to me to understand what I do. I really don't want to do anything without understanding what it is. But in terms of professionally, what I try to do is not accept the urban legends, the urban myths about what we're supposed to be doing, the things that have been told forever, what we should be doing. But what I want to make sure of is that it actually does make sense. So You know, it didn't come to me all at once. Over the course of my practice, I've come up with a number of new ways to try cases, and I would lecture about them around the country. I'd write articles about them. One was called choice theory. One was called the need for protection. One was called uh, circle of proof. I mean, I came up with different ways to do it, but I always found holes in them. I would find something that it wasn't complete. Completeness is critically important to understanding. So I was pretty disappointed. I mean, there was a lot of value to them, but they weren't it. But some of those different ways to try cases have ended up in case framing. They are aspects of what case framing is about. And then just experience. I mean, I think that for you to really understand something, you have to develop a feel for what it is that you're doing. And when you do the work and you are intuitive and then you develop the feel, that's when the insights come to you and they come from all different sources. So your question, how did it come to me? So I tried a case in uh, 2010 and it was a medical negligence case and Yvette and I, my wife and I tried it together. And after the trial, one of the issues in the case was that this surgeon didn't do preoperative x-rays before he did foot surgery. And we knew it was a strong issue. Oh, this is in the book, Mark, isn't it? It is in the book. Okay, okay. Right. There were many issues in the case. We fortunately won on a number of different grounds, but this was one. And we did focus groups, tested it. It was strong. People had a really intense reaction to the doctors not doing pre-op x-rays. You know, you need some kind of roadmap to know where you're going in the foot, especially a foot where people walk on it and the bones move, everything changes in some way. After the verdict, this juror and one urban myth, urban legend is that you don't want teachers on your jury. They tend to control a jury. They tend to teach. I don't agree with that. I mean, I don't want all teachers, but a psychologically healthy teacher, 
Yeah, I, of course I want that person on my jury. I want educated people on my jury if they're psychologically healthy. So this fellow wrote me and complimented me on the trial. And so then we talked and I asked him about the issues. And when I asked him about the failure to do pre-op x-rays, he said, well, we knew it didn't matter ultimately in terms of causing the problem, but we just couldn't get over the fact that he didn't do them. And that hit me. It was an epiphany to me. So that was one experience. So with all the experience I had had, trials I had had, whatever insight, intuition, feel I developed, that moved my thinking about what the model, what the mindset should be an enormous distance. It was very helpful because I realized what came out of that realization was not just what I call, I just can't get over issues. The issues that juries just can't get over will help them decide a case. But it really struck such a deep responsive chord in me in the following way. Ultimately, if you attempt to do anything, doesn't matter what it is. You be a painter, you be a plumber, you be a banker, you be a trial lawyer. And particularly in those jobs, those professions, in which persuasion is part of it, whether it's politics, being a trial lawyer, whatever. Every single thing you do, your goal, should feel good and natural. If what you do feels good and right to you in every way, you will do it the best you can do it. You will understand it the most you can understand it. And I had never read that before. No one had ever talked about it before. All the other models that I had read about, some of them I respect a significant amount. They didn't feel good and natural, good and right to me in every way. They weren't perfectly natural to me. Your discussion reminds me of a concept in psychology called flow. I don't know if you're familiar with this. I'm not. A psychologist named Chik Mensipai, I believe he's the innovator. And it's this point where you are fully occupied in your task. It's not too hard for you. It's not too easy for you. And when you lock into that zone, it becomes timeless. And he said, that's one of the key characteristics of it. Your work becomes timeless. And you can think you got up and you've been there for an hour. You've been there for four hours because it's been so effortless and fun, basically. It occupies your brain on the perfect level, not 10,000 feet, not on the ground. Okay, so that's a huge part of this, but it's not all of it. So the other part of it is, in addition to, let's call it flow, the actual content of what you're doing saying has to be exactly what you should be doing and saying. So it's a combination of your state of mind, your ability to focus, because the ability to drive attention at trial is critical to success. But it isn't just being in a Zen state or flow. It's what you're doing has to be 100% appropriate for what it is you're trying to accomplish. So one thing I've tried to figure out is, you know, in closing argument, when you ask for money, you tell the jury the amount of money you think would be fair and appropriate, the compensation. I've heard people say, well, when you award, I'm asking you to award a certain amount of money. And, you know, I've always heard, don't use the word award. It sounds like a tort reform word, lawsuit lottery. It's a gift kind of thing. It's not earned. So I tried to figure out, well, what do I say? What would be good and natural in every way? So I thought, well, what is it that the jury's doing exactly 
what is at the heart and soul of what they're doing, which is how I figure things out. I go to what I think the heart and soul of it is. And I started that path by saying, well, what are the most important things to us in our society? Individually, what is the most important thing to us? Well, obviously family, if somebody has faith, but participatory things, well, one of them is the right to vote. The fact we get to choose our leaders, we get to cast our individual vote. And then it hit me, another epiphany. Well, that's exactly what the jury's doing. When they sit in deliberations, the ultimate verdict is a compilation of each juror's vote. But essentially, ultimate jury empowerment is to elevate the jury, to elevate their sense of what their responsibility is, to give them this power. And so what I do now is when I talk to a jury, I talk to them about voting for justice, voting for a just verdict when they vote. And I end with that. That's one of the last things I say. That's jury empowerment to me. And I have lectured a lot around the country. And I was in the state of Wisconsin a couple of years ago. I can't remember, three or four years ago. And I want to say the fellow's name was Ben Altman. Ben was the president of the Wisconsin Trial Lawyers that year I lectured there. And he wrote me about, I don't know, about a month after my lecture and told me he had just gotten his first seven-figure verdict and how thankful he was because he followed case framing. And he said to me, and I want to tell you that every time I talk to the jury about their voting, voting for justice, but the vote, he said it felt good and right in every way. Okay, so now imagine, guys, Every single aspect, every single second at trial, you have enough consciousness that everything you do feels good and right to you in every way. Now, that wins trials. That to me is the model that I use. That's what I see case framing as. Case framing is a compilation of principles, mindset, as my friend, my dear friend Ben Rabinowitz wrote in his forward to my second book. He said, it's not a mind model, it's a mindset. And he's right. It's how I live my life. John and I often raise this issue in our podcasts, and I'm sure Johnny's heard this at the firm. It seems like there's two tectonic plates underneath every trial. And one is that the plaintiff attorney is trying to stay on task, try to keep the message clear. And the defense, as John would often say, their job is to distract, to make things unclear, to cast out, to cause distraction. And I'm wondering if you would buy into that as a deep tension going on throughout the trial. And I'm wondering whether your prime motivation is to say, we got to stop that. We got to stay clear and you're offering a way to stay clear. I'm not sure if I agree or disagree with the underlying principle that you just expressed for the following reasons. To a plaintiff's lawyer, all they want to do is, the other side wants to do is distract cause confusion, et cetera. I'm pretty sure that's how defense lawyers look at what we're doing as plaintiff's lawyers. It's all your frame. It's all your perspective. So yes, one defense strategy is to interrupt the flow, to use that word again, to distract, to confuse. I get that. I've seen that. I've experienced that. But it isn't universal. Maybe some defense lawyers do it all the time because that's their shtick. That's what they know to do. And that may be all they know to do. And maybe it works 90% of the time for them, and that's not a bad win rate. But it isn't universal. That's the only reason I say I don't know that I agree or disagree, 
I do agree that that does happen, but I think it's more understandable to me in terms of what our frames are versus what their frames are. Everything the defense presents at trial should be framed in sequence to put focus on the points they most want to make. Now, we have to support our good issues, our good I can't get over issues, and overcome the bad ones. They need to do the same. How do you overcome, as a defense lawyer, the issues that are bad for you or the ones that are good for the plaintiff? Well, you confuse what they are, what we're saying. You make it staccato so it isn't a smooth flow by the plaintiff. So, yes, I agree that what you and Johnny have talked about, these two tectonic plates, are part of a strategy to overcome a bad issue. But you still, I believe, need to put forth your own good issues, too. And that's the part that's missing in that analysis. And so that's what I'm saying is, yes, a defense lawyer will distract, will confuse, will make it staccato, truncate, disrupt. But really, against a really good plaintiff's lawyer who understands framing and sequencing and putting forward and being strong and disciplined and doing it coordinated and concerted, it isn't enough to do that. Mark, if we could, Johnny and I have had the benefit of reading your books, and I assume a lot of listeners have not. Could we go over a few of your basic terms, starting with content? And I understand content to be the big basket of evidence that we bring into a trial. But then you move on to framing. Could you tell us what that term means? Let me take a half a step back, okay? okay. Just half a step. Sure. Because content isn't just a big basket of what we present. In my first 30 years of practice, that's how I understood content, exactly what that definition. But to really understand it, to really understand it, I mean, what is the value of content in a trial? Because we're not reading a book alone in our house. We're not watching a movie with friends. We're trying to persuade people we don't know, have never met before. That's one of the requirements of them being on a jury of what we believe to be true and what we want them to believe to be true. So content is one thing, but what is the dynamic that's actually happening? Well, I, or you guys, or your witnesses, or your exhibits, you're trying to persuade. So you, as I describe in the book, are part of the content because the content has no meaning without someone to present it. And the same that a jury is part of content because the content has no relevance if it's presented in a vacuum and there's nobody else there, I'm presenting thoughtful ideas and I'm alone in the middle of Alaska. So content isn't just the basket of ideas. It's who presents it, what they present and to whom. Framing is a way of describing the meaning of the content and setting it forth so it becomes a filter. It isn't just you're saying, here's what I believe this means by the way I describe it. It's that that description then allows the jury, like a filter, a lens through which the jury sees everything else that happens after it. And it becomes more understandable. So there are two kinds of filters, two kinds of lenses, I believe. One is those that when you look through them, everything that follows you interpret in part based on what that content of the filter. 
for example, the defendant altered records. It's a character stain. Everything a jury hears after that about what the doctor says happened is affected by that filter of dishonesty. But there's a second kind of filter. And what that filter does is it affects not so much everything that happens after, it does do that, but it also goes back and ties everything that happened before into a nice gift wrap package. So filters have the effect of influencing what you see that follows and then bringing it all together at the end. And so that's what framing is. It's a way of defining the meaning of what happened through the use of ideas, concept, truths, conduct that strike a deep responsive chord in everybody who hears it and either influences how they view what happens after or brings it all together. So it, aha, that makes sense. Mark, you defined a frame as a principle that has a virtually universal application in society at large. So it's not like jurors have to do a lot of work to have these things intuit in a strong way within them when they hear them. They're used to these sorts of things. And maybe we could offer a few examples. Wrongful accusation, rush to judgment, know your limits, speed kills, like you mentioned, cover up, system failure, profits over safety, need for preparation, and you have others. But as I'm reading these, I'm thinking everybody gets these things when they hear them. They, they get them, and they get them not only in the courtroom, they get them everywhere. And, Eric, it's like that. there are no neutral reactions to those. Right, right, exactly. That's a great way to put it. Every person in the world has been wrongfully accused of something. Now, maybe it's not something big. You know, maybe it was you who ate that cookie and not your brother. That's as banal as it could get, right? But it doesn't matter because to the person accused, it's always big. And that's the key. You will have jurors, every single juror. I've never talked to anybody for more than 30 seconds if I was trying to find out what they were wrongfully accused about, who wasn't wrongfully accused of something, however big or small. You know, I was 10 years old. I was in a summer camp here in Rhode Island. And it was an overnight camp. And there was this carnival and this one cabin, this one bunk had a, a secret thing that you could only know what was inside there by going in. And then you couldn't tell anybody. So sure enough, somebody, you know, spilled the beans. And someone said it was me. And so that cabin thought it was me. Now, I'm telling you, I tell you if it was me. I could care less. It was 50 years ago or more. But it wasn't me. But I'm talking to you about it now, like 55 years later. You remember it distinctly. Well, and I still don't like it. So the point is, I mean, I, it's not dominating in my life, but how insignificant is that? So that's what I'm talking about. It's that which strikes a responsive chord in everybody or virtually everybody. The difficult thing for me was taking the content that you wrote, these frames, it seemed so obvious when I was reading. I was like, yeah, wrong flag accusation, for sure. But discovering your frame for your case is like the essence of what we need to do. And it's, it's difficult to be litigating the case, but it's kind of like you can't litigate the case without knowing what your frame is. How do you discover that essential truth of your case? You gave the world a roadmap 
and said, here, you want my ideas? Here are the frames. And I can take the cases I'm working on and look at them and go, that one's good. That one's good. But it might not be the right one. How do you discover, you know, is it a process? Do you just know from doing it? Every single thing you do, if you want to do it well, you practice. I do it all the time. I don't mean literally all the time. I do it a lot. I do it not just in helping other lawyers. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine two days ago who was in a major uh, hearing on an important public policy issue about whether masks could be mandated or not. And we spent an hour the day before talking about how to frame it. So I do it very, very frequently. So it's practice number one. And number two is, at this point, it's pretty second nature to me because I, I do spend an enormous amount of time in all aspects of my life thinking about it. But the building block, the way you determine the frame, and this is really why the understanding of the essence of whatever it is you're doing is so important, is I came to understand that it's the I just can't get over issues good for your case that will tell you what your overall case frame is. They define your overall case frame. How do they do that? Well, you look for the collective thread of meaning, almost like you could see the yarn and stitching a, a suit or a gown together. You know, it goes through all the different pieces, the needle and the yarn. Well, that thread that runs as a collective meaning, each aspect, each I just can't get over issue, is part of it. So the collective thread of meaning that runs between your good I can't get over issues tell you what your overall case frame is. So the example I use is the O.J. Simpson criminal trial. The very first understanding of an overall case frame I had was wrongful accusation. Because if you ask people what the overall case frame of that criminal defense trial is, they'll tell you Johnny Cochran's brilliant one-liner. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Or they'll say rush to judgment, or they'll, or they'll say police misconduct. Yeah, Mark Furman was racist. The thought was he planted the glove. But to me, they're not universal applications. How many people have had police misconduct against them? How many people have been the subject of a rush to judgment? More than have had police misconduct. And how many people have had a glove on that got drenched in blood, and then because when it dried, it shrunk, it was too small? Well, one person that I know of, OJ. So the point I'm trying to make is they're not of universal application. But the thread of meaning that runs through those three is wrongful accusation. Because there was a wrongful accusation, the glove didn't fit. Because there was a rush to judgment, because there was police misconduct, there was a wrongful accusation. That's how you find out the overall case frame. Is it more difficult to do when you first try to do it? Of course it is. Virtually everything is that way. But what isn't so hard to come to understand is what the I just can't get over issues are in your case, good for you and bad for you. Because when I've lectured on this, I've had very good friends of mine come up to me and people that, that were new friends of mine come up to me after and said, you know, I was listening to you, Mark. And I'm going through my cases and I say, oh my God, of course, that's an I just can't get over it. This issue. They jump out at you. And that's why they feel good and natural as a concept in every way, because they jump out at you. As I'm reading your list of frames, I'll pick three more here. Abuse of power, do your job, 
the value of a handshake, actions speak louder than words, inevitability of harm. In other words, it was just a matter of time before someone got hurt because of this. It goes on and on, but these are, they seem like lightning rods for compelling attention. These are really powerful tools. They're stories. It seems like each one of these is like a mini story that compels attention. They are, and they're more than that though. All right, let me explain. Do your job. You could have two conflicting proofs, plaintiff defendant. You might have an issue that the plaintiff thinks is so strong. I've heard my friend say it to me. I've said it. I mean, this is a great issue for me in this case. How do I lose this case? I mean, this is, they'll never get over this. It's that good and I can't get over issue. Well, the problem is that if I somehow do something that is a mistake at trial or the other side gets to flip that issue, it can become as a powerful issue, it can become very bad for me. The best issue can become bad for you if, if you don't frame it and sequence it the right way. But what brings it all home to a jury, a case frame can be an overall case frame or a secondary case frame. And I explain that in the books. But a case frame is what motivates the jury to action. A case frame describes for the jury why what happened happened. And jurors want to know why. Almost everybody I know, including me, forever, tried to prove what happened. It's not enough. You've got to tell the jury, teach the jury why what happened happened. So why did this happen? Because the defendant didn't do his job. She didn't do her job. Now, why is that such a powerful overall case frame? Because everybody everywhere, except for maybe the most psychotic of people, and maybe even them too, I don't know. But everybody knows everybody's got to do their job. You get on a plane and fly, you're praying to God the pilot's not drunk or that the people who maintained your car when you took it in put those lug nuts on tight enough. Or when you go to a restaurant that they have sanitary conditions, they're doing their job in the kitchen. It explains the obvious and the not so obvious why it happened. And once juries understand why, they know what to do. Traditionally, a lot of lawyers have talked about negligence, and it just seems so, so weak and uh, diffuse compared to what you are offering. Abstracts, that's what negligence is. It's an abstract. And uh, abstracts are not a friend. Certainly not a friend of plaintiff's lawyers. I don't think they're a friend of any lawyer. Because an abstract is an invitation to the jury to fill in something that you have no idea what they're going to supply because you don't know them. You may have a vague understanding of one small issue you asked about in voir dire, but that's it. You take the concept of betrayal. Now, that's a very powerful case frame because there's nothing good about it. It stings. It's not even good for the people who do it. But everybody thinks, you know, I've heard very, very great lawyers say, oh, there should be betrayal argued in every case. Well, I don't agree with that. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It may have nothing to do with the case. And you can try to make it the case, but you can't recreate the genetics of a case. But it's also got to fit the facts of the case. Because it could be the most powerful case frame in the world, but if it's irrelevant to your case, you're going to sound crazy mentioning it. So it's got to satisfy both. So 
if betrayal doesn't satisfy that it's related to the facts of the case, really the heart and soul of the case, I don't think you should use it. Why? Because for every person betrayed who's on the jury who might get angry at the defendant if they're a betrayer, for every betrayed person, you're likely to have a betrayer on the jury. Yeah. I mean, there aren't more betrayed people than there are betrayers. <laughs> they, yeah. they go together. I just tried the most difficult case of my career, and it was a suicide discharge case. And we got a plaintiff's verdict in a county where there hadn't been a plaintiff's verdict in a number of years. It's a pretty conservative county in Missouri. I tried it with a, a partner here, Tim Cronin. And, you know, my biggest concern going into that case was it was tough liability. A young woman with all kinds of psychiatric problems tried to commit suicide, was in the hospital for less than 48 hours and sent home with a follow-up appointment eight days later, which she kept. And she ended up lighting herself on fire 14 days later. So I thought, you know, when my dad put it on my desk, I was like, this is an impossible. I don't know what you want me to do about it. And when we ended up going out there to try it, my biggest concern was I didn't put the label on it, but I kind of knew intuitively, look, I don't want to make the defendant doctor, like, I don't want to make him look like a criminal. You know, I don't want to overstate how terrible he treated this woman. I don't want to call him that he betrayed her. I can't go that far with it. I think that's what you're trying to say and what you said in your book about, you know, choosing the right. If you choose the wrong frame, I mean, you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. To illustrate it during the trial, I think it was during closing argument, the defense lawyer made a comment about me attacking him or disparaging him. And during the trial, the defendant doctor had called one of our lawyers a liar on the stand. He was on cross-exam and he called my partner. He said, you're a disingenuous liar. And I was like, whoa, that's the best thing to happen to us because that's not what we're calling him. And it looked like he was attacking us. And when the defense lawyer said it in close, you know, I responded by saying, did I call him a bad guy? Did I say anything that he's a bad person? Is that what we're here about? You know, he called me a liar, but, you know, did I attack him? And the jurors that came up to us, they made comments about it. They're like, that was totally inappropriate for him to say that to you. And I was like, yeah. And it, it just made it so much more human. And I was like, man, the way we handled that case was soft playing. I didn't attack anybody. And, you know, our frame was kind of like the assembly line medicine thing and the mental health care crisis that we have in this country. But it's picking that right frame. I think if I would have went in there with betrayal, I would have got laughed out of the courtroom. I agree with you. And if you think about it, Johnny, all right, one of the most difficult issues, because I've had those cases too, uh, not a self-immolation case, but suicide cases otherwise, is that it's so scary to jurors, that concept. People's stability, their emotional cognitive stability, is like surface level, it's skin deep. And so one of the biggest issues in those cases is that is not necessarily relevant, but it, it's an I just can't get over issue bad for us, is that people think, you know, maybe this doctor didn't do exactly what he should or she should, but this person was going to commit suicide anyway. It was just a matter of time. And even if he did it right, two days later, she might have killed herself. It's not his fault. That's how seriously ill she was. So I believe that to be true. But in addition to what you said, let's take the frame of do your job. 
All right. So what I heard from you was this. That defendant didn't do his job. We're not saying he's evil. He just didn't do his job. If you have a likable, wonderfully likable defendant, and I've had those, you should gravitate towards, if you can, a do-your-job case frame. Because you're not criticizing the person. You're criticizing what they did. It wasn't doing their job. So now you try to bring that into what's happening at trial. You did your job. You did it perfectly. You didn't take the bait. You were measured. You knew enough to know not to attack him. So who didn't do his job? Well, the defendant, because he, he went overboard. He did the wrong thing again. He did it to your client. Now he did it to you. He called one of the lawyers in your office a liar. He didn't do his job. So who ultimately has to do their job? Well, guess what? The jurors told you they did their job because they told you they knew they didn't like what he did. It just runs throughout that trial. And that has the effect of overcoming those, if left alone, very difficult to overcome bad issues like it was just a matter of time. Mark, I like your explanation of what you just said. Unfortunately, we're at the end of this episode. I'm so glad that you offered to come back to continue this conversation. And we'll do that on the next episode with you. But at this time, I'll say thank you for this time that you've given us so far. My pleasure. Thank you, Mark. I've learned a tremendous amount from you, and I hope our listeners have too. So we'll be back with another round of discussion with Mark Mandel. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm here with Johnny Simon. This is Eric Veith. We'll see you next time. Take care. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and tune into other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom and Results Don't Lie. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.